everybody, this is Tom Salami. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. No doubt it's hot where you are, so you probably won't run as long as you normally do, or hopefully you won't do as many chores in the yard. So we have a slightly abbreviated episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast for you, but it's highly entertaining and informative. Chris Newmarker is carrying the load today. He not only brought his Newmarker's Newsmakers, but he also interviews Tom O'Brien, who is the worldwide president of Endo Mechanical at Ethicon. They talked about a few things, but really centered around its Echelon 3000 stapler. Uh, really interesting conversation, one that uh, I hadn't uh, really given a lot of thought to when it comes to surgical tools, and we'll talk a bit about that later on. But uh, we'll also review our Newmarker's Newsmakers. And uh, before we get into all of that, I want to invite you to a uh, webinar I'll be putting on on Tuesday. It's not a Device Talks Tuesdays, although it is on Tuesday, but it's a very short discussion about what we'll be doing at Device Talks West. This promises to be an exceptional show. We will have presentations by a lot of supporting companies, including Abbott, Boston Scientific, Medtronic, Penumbra, Shockwave. We'll have speakers from Intuitive and Outset. You can find it all on devicetalks.com. I have more names coming your way. But uh, we really wanted to uh, just take 10 to 15 minutes on the webinar to talk about what the program looks like and how you can be involved. So I will have a link to the registration page on our uh, podcast page. So you can uh, go to devicetalks.com, find the page for this podcast, and I'll have the uh, registration link there. Or I'll put it in the comments on LinkedIn if you're checking out my LinkedIn posts about the podcasts. Or heck, just reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter or shoot me an email, T Salemi, T S A L E M I, at WTWH Media. Would be great to have you uh, as part of the presentation. You can ask questions and uh, hear what we're up to. It's going to be really, really great. So, all right, without any further delay, let's get this podcast started. But, but, but. But I do want to say this podcast is brought to you by our very own Device Talks West. Our meeting is happening on October 19th and 20th at the Santa Clara Convention Center. It's going to be an exceptional community meeting for the West Coast med tech community. And you should not miss it. Whether you're on the West Coast, East Coast, or Midwest, anywhere you are, you should be in Santa Clara on October 19th and 20th. Go to devicetalks.com for more information and to register. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Doing well, Tom, doing well. Fantastic. Cooler weather here in Minnesota, though. I heard you're boiling, been boiling out in Boston, right? Oh, it hasn't been so bad. You know, I think I think it's hot everywhere. I feel like every Zoom call yeah. I have has been a discussion about whether the temp has moved it to up or down 10 degrees. So, of course, it's summer. It's typical. It's summer. You know, a few yeah. half a year from now, we'll be complaining about, you know, it's so cold, you know. <laughs> you'll still be, you'll be, still be grilling in the wintertime, though, right? Because you grill outdoors during the winter. Yeah. A little, you know. I mean, winters. I'm not. I'm not that hardcore up here. I'm not not pulling the grill out in the in the winter time, though. I mean, I do. I do see, you know, especially like old guys around my neighborhood doing that. That's pretty. It's pretty good. Maybe I'll wait till I'm older. It's a good, be a good, good retiring thing to do. I'm gonna grill out my steak, even though it's like 10 degrees outside or whatever. I have a small deck on my house, smallish deck on my house, and we had the grill on it, which was 
very convenient, but I moved it off early this summer to make more room for just leisurely decking and just going down the stairs. It's really cut my grill probably in half, like my grilling in half. How tall is your deck? How tall high effort? Well, it's like five or six steps. I'm incredibly <laughs> lazy, like, Chris. I'm not saying. <laughs> I mean, this is like climbing, you know, Chichen Itza or something, you know. It's like. not a hardship. Yeah. No, yeah, no, no. I just out of sight, out of mind. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a girl down there. I can use yeah, that. That's good. All right. So we have a lot going on today. We'll have a, our, yes. go for our new markers, newsmakers. And then you speak with Tom O'Brien from Ethicon about their new Echelon surgical stapler. Very good job with the interview, Chris Newmarker. But you, you wouldn't think that something as seemingly mundane as a stapler would have so many, so much complexity to it. No, seriously. I mean, yeah. it was, uh, yeah, it was it was really, um, I, I I say this was all, with all honesty, I never thought that uh, surgical tools were so fascinating. Yeah. It, was, uh, it was actually, yeah, it's a, it's a really good interview about like how, you know, I mean, we, we talk about like, some of these really cool gizmos like oh robots and you know stuff that you know pr- you know delivers electrical charges to the heart uh, you know, but uh but but yeah it's something i mean it's something that you know you know people need you know we we need to have surgeries we need to have laparoscopic surgeries and uh and uh you know it's uh it's actually very interesting how you can innovate something like that and uh you know, like get some real results. Absolutely. So. And I, and he had uh, one of uh, my more entertaining, how you get into med tech industry things. We won't say anything. We'll tease it, but uh, oh yeah. 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 His path there was made me chuckle. So, all right, Chris Newmarker, let us roll into this. We know why the people are here. They're here to hear the new markers, newsmakers list. So what That's is right? The new markers, newsmakers. Well, well, Tom, I mean, okay, to start out, I mean, it's uh, do I have to play the sad music? Are we? Yeah. Yeah. Play the. Oh no. The first one's not sad, right? Well, you know, actually, you know it's interesting. So you know we're in the middle of earnings seasons right now, and actually there there the there's a lot of grim, or I don't know grim, but it's it's just you know kind of sad earnings reports right now. Companies taking a lot of med tech companies taking hits on their stocks. Uh, you know as they reduce guidance and you know miss miss the street. I mean you know Edwards Life Sciences for example like had a had a tough uh, a tough day with their uh, earnings report. Mm-hmm. But of all of those earnings stories, the ones that's doing the best on Mass Device actually had a little more of an optimistic, uh, you know, tone to it. Probably just people are just looking for a little optimism, you know. So we have, you know, uh, you know, Striker, and they did uh, lower their uh, EPS guidance for the year, but at the same time, they actually uh, boosted their expected sales growth. Um, you know, they're expecting like eight to nine percent this year from a pre- previous six to eight percent. So you no, know, that's uh, this is kind of like a. You know, good news. I mean, like they're I mean, they're facing supply shortages. I mean, that's actually probably just to back up. I mean, that's probably the biggest theme we're hearing with all the earnings reports yeah. we're hearing about, like supply chain problems, macroeconomic, you know, troubles, you know, inflation. Yeah, B- BTIG said that uh, Edwards' slowdown was attributed to uh, they chalked it up to slower recovery in the U.S. staffing challenges, yeah, as well as stiff foreign currency headwinds. So. Some big macro stuff going on for sure. Dollar is strong right now, yeah. so you know that's uh, that, that's causing um, you know so they could you know make it make it harder to uh, to sell overseas. Um, you know, so you so say there's just like a host of things that you know people are working through economically. You know, and you know in the general news, you know we've got the uh, debate over the dreaded R word. So don't say it. I'm not going to say if it. I see like, one more LinkedIn article about whether we're in an R or not an R. Um, but the Globe had an interesting article this week about uh, ORs in Boston, the Boston Globe, uh, just having to shut down because of lack of nurses, lack of staffing yeah. there. So I have to think that that's 
going to be impacting MedTech down the line if other hospitals are experiencing the same problem. If fewer, yeah, fewer procedures are done, obviously fewer devices are sold. Absolutely. I mean, that. yeah, I mean, that's that's another thing we've been, you know, hearing somewhat in the earnings reports is like people talking about, um, you know, staffing shortages at hospitals and it's just not ramping back up as, as quickly as they thought. I mean, the, you know, people working in healthcare, had a, they've had a tough few years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not going to be easy to get things back to, uh, you know, where they were with uh, staffing, you know, before before the pandemic. So we'll uh, yeah, we'll see how long it takes to to get that back as well. Sure. And then yeah. you know, there's all the issues around that. I mean, we had nurses doing little little protesting picketing around the Twin Cities like a few weeks ago. So a lot going on in that space. Absolutely. And uh, I'll, I'll plug the Medtronic Talks podcast that's coming up next week. I spoke with uh, Dr. Lara Maori. She's uh, the new uh, Senior Vice President, Chief Scientific Medical and Regulatory Officer at Medtronic. Uh, She was an interventional cardiologist until 2018, but we talked a bit about what companies like Medtronic can do to support hospitals uh, and to to sort of be partners in in finding a solution going forward. So folks should should check that out. All right. Well, good news, I guess, for Stryker. For Stryker, which happens to be the largest orthopedic device company how do you know that chris newmarker you know funny thing (laughs) um you know i uh you know we you know we have our uh annual big 100 project you know which is uh, coming out in september but i'm giving people a little early sneak peek and going through uh the uh, annual reports for uh the largest ortho companies and ranking them by the uh revenue size of their businesses so we have a nice list on a mass device, the 10 largest orthopedic device companies in the world. We just posted this week. You can find out what the 10 are. And we've got, uh, you know, nice, nice sections like updating on, you know, how all these different companies are doing. So if you want to get a nice snapshot of where the largest companies in the ortho space and how are they are doing, go to uh, massdevice.com and check out 10 largest orthopedic device companies in the world. Absolutely. No, it's a, it's a great account. And uh, I guess we're, 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 we're revealing it. Striker is number one, and uh, I was surprised by how much it is number one. So, uh, <laughs> folks definitely want to check out these numbers. I thought they were very, very telling. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty pretty amazing. I mean, you know, and I, I remember it was kind of big news years ago, and you know, Striker was kind of like moving ahead of uh, Depew, you know, in in the rankings to become the largest, and still very much is so. And uh, you know, we uh, yeah, and it's kind of like some uh, some kind of new names on the list versus previous years of. You know, when we've uh, done something like this as well, because we've had some interesting spinoffs going on. In fact, uh, we've got a spinoff coming up farther up in the uh, in this new marker newsmakers list. Absolutely. And just looking at the list, I see, uh, and I won't say where they are, but uh, Dupuy Synthes, who we had in Device Talks Boston, Zimmer Biomet, who we should have at Device Talks West, is on the list as well. And of course, Medtronic, who we've got things going on with. So huge spine business. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Very much so. Oh, they have to go to Mass Device now to read the rest of it. So. Yeah, exactly. I didn't tell. I didn't say where they are. People got to find that they can. They can find out where they're placed on the list. But uh, definitely. So, how, the best way to go is just to just Mass check device. out. Uh, you know, ten largest orthopedic device companies in the world on uh, on MassDevice.com. Yeah, we'll include a link to the article uh, on the uh, on the show Absolutely. notes as well. All right, Chris Very Newmarker. Cool. What is number three on the new markers newsmaker? <laughs> what is number three on the new markers? The new markers newsmakers. We got number three. Three. We've got uh, you know prescription digital therapies company Paratherapeutics. They're uh, letting go of roughly uh, twenty five employees. It's about 
9% of their uh, workforce. Um, you know, they, they only uh, started publicly trading last year. Uh, you know, it's one of those uh, slew of uh, SPAC deals we saw. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, this is, looks like they're saying they want to narrow their uh, near-term uh, business focus and reduce workforce due to uh, a phrase we're unfortunately hearing too much right now, macroeconomic environments. So there we go. We got some uh, some, some layoffs happening. Well, that's, that's unfortunate. This yeah. was from very unfortunate. You and pulled it pulled this from the uh, from their AK. Yep, exactly. Yep. Yeah, the AK came down from them with the uh, with the news. Uh, based in Boston, you know, uh, like definitely one of the companies that we've kind of been uh, you know following a lot, you know, because they were one of the SPAC deals went public. You know, kind of in this really interesting uh, you know digital therapeutics you know, space, like kind of like this, this idea that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, and, and you know, um, you know, and, instead of pharmaceuticals or along with pharmaceuticals, you could have some, you know, really neat digital health offerings that could, you know, help people, uh, you know, manage, you know, various conditions, you know, so they're very active in that space. All righty, let's uh, roll on to number two on the new markers, Newsmakers, Chris. You know, number two on the list, um, you know, this is Dexcom and, uh, you know, one, one of the really like anticipated, uh, launches we're looking for here in the U.S. is the launch of, uh, Dexcom's, uh, G7, um, you know, just, uh, you know, you know, you know, smaller than, you know, than their, their previous CGMs, you know, lower, you know, nice lower profile, all kinds of, you know, innovations they've, they've packaged into it, but it looks like we'll have to, you know, wait longer to see that because they see say that FDA gave them some feedback that they'd like some uh, software tweaks on that. So, um, you know, we're, uh, you know, like they're they're saying they're looking to see, uh, you know, limited launch in the U.S. later this year and a large commercial launch then next year. So, you know, so the big the big launch early next year is kind of what we're we're looking for now with the with the G seven. So, um, we'll. Uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of the news over there. Well, it's unfortunate slowdown, but yeah. uh, Dexcom's been white hot, so I guess uh, a little a little cool water is not going to slow them down too much. Yeah, it looks like, it looks like the markets are are digesting it pretty well because they're you know they're uh, yeah we'll get it there eventually. We'll get that G seven out in the United States, and you know it's it's something uh, that there's a lot of anticipation for it in the diabetes community. All right, Chris Newmarker, big news at number one. What is number, number one of the new markers newsmakers list? That's right. Number one is that uh, you know 3M is going to spin off uh, their healthcare business by the end of uh, 2023. So just add them to the list of these. Like you know, I mean this this seems like we're just having like tons of uh, you know spinoffs of uh, medtech and healthcare businesses right now. I mean, G Healthcare is going to become an independent company. You know, we saw you know Johnson and, and Johnson spinning off their consumer business, and so we're going to have like this kind of new Johnson Johnson med tech that's like partnered with pharma, mm-hmm. you know, in, in that company, um, you know, then of course we had like, yeah, the creation of Zimvi with, you know, Zimber Biomet spinning off its dental and spine business, BD spinning off its diabetes units, just all kinds of spinoffs. And now we're going to have like a 3M, um, there's going to, 3M Healthcare is going to go uh, independent as, as well, you know, lot, lots of questions. I mean, he's going to run this new business. I mean, they have an interim president right now, like who, you know, where the headquarters going to be. Um, if they stay in Minnesota, they'll be one of the, you know, largest companies here in Minnesota, just even on their own. Um, but uh, yeah, times are changing. And they had just the retirement of, uh, of their uh, healthcare leader, uh, Moje Pool, right? Just, yeah. Uh, uh, just, just as recently. As of July 1st. So, as of July 1st, you know, yeah. and then here they were, you know, announcing this now, like near the end of July. So, well, it's going to be interesting to see who who leads that company and what it will ultimately uh, ultimately become. It'd be nice to have another separate med tech player 
someone who we can have at conferences and on podcasts and uh, and hopefully report on on great uh, acquisitions and growth. So good for 3M Health. Yeah, they're they're arguing that you know the 3M management are saying that this uh, spinoff's going to give them more independence to like you know work on innovations. So you know, really mm-hmm. exciting. And I mean, this company, you know, just on its own, you know, brings in billions of dollars of revenue a year. So I mean, they're going to be one of the you know largest you know medical device. Uh, companies in the world i mean they had they had over you know um you know two billion sales just for the second quarter this year very cool yeah all right right. well great job chris newmarker and you're you're carrying this episode because you uh you've got this uh this upcoming interview with tom o'brien yep worldwide president of endomechanical at uh at ethicon so let's uh, let's get that started let's hear what he had to say So hi there, this is Chris Newmarker. I'm executive editor of Mass Device and Medical Design Outsourcing. Today on Device Talks Weekly, we're discussing surgical devices and tools. Johnson & Johnson's Ethicon is one of the largest surgical device companies in the world. In June, they launched their Echelon 3000 stapler. It's digitally enabled and meant to provide surgeons with simple, one-handed power articulations. Think fewer surgical complications, which is no small matter. To talk about the Echelon 3000 much more, we've got Tom O'Brien with us. He's the worldwide president of Endomechanical at Ethicon. Tom, welcome to Device Talks Weekly. Thank you, Chris. I'm glad to be here. So I, I'm always interested to hear how people got into the medical device industry. I mean, I saw on your LinkedIn page, you know, you're in, in Cincinnati, where uh, Ethicon has a huge presence. Uh, you uh, you started out, though, at another major company that's based in, in Cincinnati, Procter & Gamble. I mean, how did you go from a, a company that's known for selling, you know, soap to, you know, and cleaning products, you know, to, to surgical devices? I'm really interested to find out. So it's actually kind of a funny story. So when I was doing my graduate work, I got a chance to work on the design of an intravenous pump. And I thought it was fabulous. So I had wanted to work in healthcare. And as I was interviewing for roles, I talked with Procter & Gamble, who said, oh, we're very interested in healthcare. They have a health and beauty uh, section. I said, would I be able to work in healthcare? And they said, yeah. So I get there and I'm working on uh, shampoo. And I said, oh, wow. so, so I said, <laughs> well, I, I said, this is really interesting, but I, I was also, I was interested in healthcare. And they said, health, beauty, it's, it's the same thing. <laughs> so, but I loved it. It was a fabulous, I loved my experience at uh, Procter & Gamble. And then after going through my career, I had a chance to make a decision about after a a software startup that I was involved in to come back to, you know, a larger company. And that's where I made the choice to go to Johnson & Johnson specifically for that reason, this ongoing passion I had about trying to make a difference in people's lives. That's fantastic. That's a great story. I love it. Shampoo. But, you know, you you know, here you are working on uh, on surgical tools, you know, so I mean, like fast forwarding today. I mean, okay, so you're, you know, worldwide president of, you know, endomechanical at at Ethicon. You know, what are the like top areas, you know, where you say see Ethicon right now and investing in in innovation? I mean, what has you the most excited right now? Well, within our endomechanical business, what we're really excited about making a difference, we're very excited about making a difference in surgical complications. And I'll come back to that in a second as to why. And then we're also excited about trying to make a difference in really difficult disease states like cancer. But let me come back to complications because when I first joined the business, surgical complications, they're known and it was on our radar screen. But for most of us, we thought of surgical complications as being relatively rare. 
and it's interesting. Not in, they're relatively rare and not all that influenced by devices. And so we decided actually we needed we wanted to find out the answer of how significant a, a problem were they. And if you look at clinical trials, clinical trials are kind of a rough are are not a great way to really understand it because they're so well controlled. But about the time about six or seven years ago, we uh, started exploring some of these really large data sets. And in the US, there's the premier data set that covers about 40% of hospitals. And so we mined that data set to really understand what was the true extent of complications. And then we filtered it to understand of those complications, which ones could you really attribute to the surgery process and perhaps even the devices. And what surprised us was the complications were not as rare as we thought. And the overall health burden of them just in the US alone was two to $3 billion. Wow. So that became our rallying cry. We said, you know, with our devices and in the mechanical, we are largely, you know, you think about the devices that make up in the mechanical, there's access devices, ligation devices, right? Two thirds of it is really stapling and stapling is part of the most critical step in cancer surgeries, bariatric surgeries. That's where if you're going to, you have the greatest opportunity to deliver clinical benefit, but you also are most likely, and that's the, that's the step in the procedure is most likely to cause complications. So we put our attention against that and said, how can we make a difference? And uh, once we understood how big the, the challenge was, the question that we faced was, what's the cause? And you know, it's great that I've discovered that surgical complications are endemic, but we right. needed to understand why. And, and two themes emerged from the work that we did. One theme was access-related injuries. And that was sort of not surprising. Yet. You know, particularly when you're trying, when you're in a procedure and you're trying to address a tumor that may be lodged between critical structures, trying to navigate around with your devices to get it, it's not uncommon to injure other tissue. That was understood. The second was less understood is tissue condition. And one of the things that we learn in in developed devices is devices, when they're developed, they're developed with bench shop testing and preclinical testing. Largely, the preclinical testing that we do before we bring things to market is usually young, healthy, porcine, or other models that we use. But it's young, healthy tissue. The tissue in these cancer cases is fibrotic, it's emphysemic, it's irradiated, it's highly friable. It's nothing like the tissue that we generally would use for development purposes. And we've, you know, we did studies on the tissue to understand its elasticity, to understand how it behaved relative to actually quantify the difference. And they're huge. This is like fibrous damage. Yeah. So it's something you you put stress on friable tissue, it's going to tear much more easily. And so that was a whole series, this area of compromised tissue. And the idea that compromised tissue needed to be handled differently. There were accommodations we needed to make for compromised tissue if we really wanted to make a difference in complications. And that's where a lot of our attention has been. So going back to your original question is what is our focus? What are we eager to make a difference in? It's to better understand compromised tissue in lung cases, colorectal cases, solid organ cases, in any of these cases, in bariatric cases, GI cases, Understanding compromised tissue and the role that it plays and how it needs to be handled and how it needs to be handled differently in each of those cases. I mean, so 
how can you as the producer of the tools, I mean, I'm sure there's a chunk of this is just like, you know, the skill of the surgeon and, you know, them being aware of, you know, the condition of this tissue, but how, how is you as the maker of the tools that they're using, how can you help them better handle this, this compromised tissue so, you know, that there aren't, you know, complications down the road? Well, it has to do with how, so the mechanism that bleeding and leak complications can occur by are micro tearing. And that can happen within the jaws of devices as uh, staples being fired. So what we will do is understand how we need to tailor the design of an endocutter, how the staple formation might need to occur, the compressive load on it, the amount of lateral tension, all play a role in whether that tissue would be more susceptible than for a complication occurring. And that's where our design work is going. So there's a lot of work that's being done on the bench top and preclinically, and even with modeling, to understand how we reduce those stresses within tissue. And overall, one way to think about it is when you're handling something that's really delicate, you generally try to stabilize it. You try to widen, you know, if you're, if you're holding it with your hands, you try to spread out the load as much as possible. You try not to put lateral tension on it. You try not to yank on it one way or the other. Those are all the same principles we're following, except we're trying to do it with tissue. Yeah. We're trying to spread the load out. We're trying to put, when we, when we added our gripping surface technology, the gripping surface was simply designed to prevent lateral tissue flow. As you're compressing the tissue, it's going to want to spread and flow away from the uh, away from the device. By putting the gripping surface, then you're, you're stabilizing, you're holding it in place so that as you fire the device, you're less likely to see that motion where the tissue starts flowing away from the, uh, from the knife and away from the center of the device. That's amazing. I mean, how do you, I mean, when you're designing that gripper, you know, what, what you're using the stapler, I mean, what do you have to do to, to prevent it from, from doing that? From well, the case of that is we added a series of protrusions on the uh, cartridge of the device. So what they do is they essentially grip the surface of the tissue. Oh, that's and great. We kind of hold it in, the, in place. Kind of holds it in place. Yeah, yeah, it holds it in place from moving so that you can make the cut and as the staples are being formed. I mean, it's interesting. I'm kind of picturing like if I had like two pieces of construction paper, I could just like stick them in a stapler and boom, you know, staple. But if I was had two pieces of like Kleenex, you know, I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd be like wanting to, you know, make sure I held, held them in place and, and whatnot if I didn't want to tear them up trying to staple them together. That's exactly right. That's fascinating. So you get, so you make sure you have some grippers in there and that, that kind of like help hold them in place, you know, while the, you know, the stapling, how, how old is that innovation? How long has that been around? Well, that was one of the first innovations we came up with once wow. we understood the challenges of compromised tissue. And that, that innovation is now about seven years old, but we continue to make advances. So uh, some of our more recent innovations have been around how do we even the compressive fields. So when you're stapling, you want even compression across the entire staple line. So we have innovations that are designed to do that. We've explored and have in marketplace in the market now different staple forms. So the typical staple form that people think about looks like a B. So the legs come up, they fold over, and it makes a B. Oh wow, okay. We have staple forms now that we're employing, particularly on our circular device that was just launched, that fold over more gently. So they don't so they flatten over the tissue and they spread the load instead of just in the pockets where the bees are formed, they spread it more evenly across the entire size of the staple. And we call that a 3D staple form because it's three-dimensional, it's flatter, 
And then what we do is instead of putting the legs exactly in the same plane as the crown of the staple, we splay them off to the side. So the load is spread both longitudinally and laterally. So it's more evenly spread. So picture, you know, picture as you fold your fingers over, if you're trying to make a staple shape, instead of folding them so that they touch, they fold flat, but they fold off to the side from each other. Oh, okay. It's a different staple form. And we've employed that staple form now in several, but we started in our mechanical devices, in our linear cutters, and then most recently in our circular stapler. In the circular stapler, it was part of a solution to try to minimize anastomotic leaks, which are one of the most problematic complications that can occur in surgery, because it's a complication that will send a patient, usually a colorectal cancer patient, will send them into the ICU and send them into a resurgery if uh, they wind up getting an anastomotic leak, which occurs usually a, a day or two after surgery. Up until very recently, the typical percentage of cases that result in anastomotic leaks was between 7 and 10%. In some cases, it can be even be higher. So it's a fairly it's frequent tough. complication, yeah. and it's, it can be a devastating complication. It's also a complication that about 15% of the people who get it will die from it. So we looked at that and said, can we make a difference? And the thinking was, well, that's a complication that has so many different factors that are involved in it. It's going to be incredibly difficult to make a meaningful difference. And then it'll be even more difficult to be able to prove it later on. But we said, well, let's give it a shot. I mean, if, if uh, a complication is so severe that it can cause mortality and have a devastating impact on patients' lives, we said, maybe we can make a difference. So what we did is we employed those principles, even compression, stabilizing tissue, using that new staple form to spread the load more evenly, the gripping surface to hold the tissue in place so that it's not likely to pull or stretch or cause micro tears. And then we added uh, powered firing so that there was no lateral tension. And so when you fire a device, sometimes these things can be pretty hard to fire. And so yeah. it's very difficult to keep the tips steady. But when you have a powered firing, you can hold the tip very steady. So we employ all those innovations together in one circular device. Tell me a little bit more about the firing. I mean, with these types of devices, is it like pneumatic power or how, how do they work? Well, there's two ways that they do. The manual devices, particularly with endocutters, are usually... There's an arm, a trigger that you have to usually stroke between one and four times, depending on the device itself, to get mechanical leverage, to be able to get the jaw to close, the knife to cut across, and then all the staples to be formed. So you get bigger. If you're forming 80 staples, that's a lot of energy. So in some of those uh, devices, there'll be multiple strokes in a manual device. So you might have to squeeze it several times in order to uh, fire it. We had an experiment that we would do is we'd ask surgeons to actually fire the device and see how steady they could hold the tip of the device while they're firing this thing, stroking it, you know, three or four times. Yeah. And it's very difficult to do. It creates a squiggle pattern when they do it. That's oh, much harder. And then when we introduced the powered device, we said, okay, now see how steady you can hold the tip. And as you can imagine, if you find a power device and it automatically fires and sends the knife down, forms all the staples you can keep the device, the tip of the device within a half a centimeter. Oh, wow. Yeah, and what's important about that is when the device tip is moving, you're clamped on the tissue, so you're gonna fire, you're gonna fire the place that you want. But what's gonna happen is you're gonna put stress on the tissue because you'll have lateral stress. And one of the worst things you can do with the staple line is put lateral stress on it while you're firing. Oh, wow. So just like getting a powered device in and what this is, so it's basically like electronic 
motors to yeah, so it's a yeah, battery powered motor that fires the uh, that controls the firing of the device. And so each one of those things, the powered firing, stabilizes it from lateral tissue movement. Pre-compression forces the fluid out of the tissue so that when the firing occurs, that the stress level that's uh, created when the jaws come close together and the staples are fired is reduced and more uniform. The gripping surface is, holds the tissue within the jaws of the device from flowing so that the, the, there's not internal stress that's created. And then ultimately the staple forms themselves can spread the load more evenly. And each one of those things contributes to this idea of stabilizing tissue and more evenly treating the, uh, the tissue during the firing sequence. Kind of like moving on then, we, you know, we've got the Echelon you know, 3000, you know, which um, you know, just, just recently launched here in the, in the US. And this is kind of like the next generation device. I mean, what specifically then are the, the new benefits that you've added on you know, with, this, with this iteration of it? Let's see. So when I was talking about circular, ultimately the circular device was all about approaching the types of tissue that we had and improving the firing ability. With the Echelon 3000 device, our attention was to the first of those themes, was we realized that axis-related injuries and axis can be one of the most important ways that you can make a difference in complications. So with the design of that, that device, we're looking at how we can improve access in three major procedures. One of them was the lung cancer, lung cancer procedure, so a thoracic procedure, reaching in, uh, over and doing a medial segmentectomy. And what you need there is a really, you need a wide jaw aperture to reach over and to grasp the thick medial lung. You needed to have articulation that could be hand, that where you could articulate the device within the thoracic cavity without pressing it against other tissue and to be able to get it precisely where you wanted. You need a sharp angle to be able to make sure that you can get this, the medial section properly. And then when you fire the device, you need a nice smooth powered firing. And wow. so that's what we did. We brought together with this device. So using these different cases, we increase the draw aperture so you can open the jaw wider to get around tissue. We increase the angle of articulation so that, you know, I gave you an example in lung, but then the other case that we were looking at was colorectal case. When you're deep in the pelvic area, and you need to be able to get as close to a right angle as you can get. This is the sharpest angle that you can get on any stapler now. And the jaw wow. aperture is the widest that you can get. So it was all about improving the ability of getting the jaw and the jaw aperture around the tissue that you need to without impinging on other tissue. It sounds like a lot of human factors were involved in this. That's a lot of what we do. So the weight balance of the device, the articulation angle, even things like we use some of the intelligence of the device to be able to allow the, uh, the articulation controls to be used where the device is upside down or right side up so that the, the orientation, it corrects for the orientation. So the surgeon, there's no confusion as to which way the device is going to articulate when you uh, when you press the buttons, all thinking about what's the surgeon intend to do with the device when they're deep in the, the thoracic cavity or deep in the pelvic area, or if they're doing a sleeve gastrectomy as part of a bariatric procedure, they're in the chest cavity trying to get a precise angle as they form the, the sleeve. Uh, I'm, the I'm thinking like, you know, when you're creating this, you know, we, we got hit with, you know, the COVID pandemic, you know, so I'm thinking it would have been hard to get into the operating rooms to watch them in person to, you know, get, get an idea of what they were doing. How did you, you know, how did you work around that? Well, 
the development in the understanding of these uh, these procedures happens over a many year time frame. So we build upon the knowledge we have. So, so these we were years before the so pandemic. So we were we so were yeah. in cases yeah. before COVID. Yeah. And so a lot of the design principles and a lot of the work the work was done was before COVID. But you're absolutely right. Is getting into cases during COVID was really challenging. We were able to do it but not to the extent that uh, you know, we normally were. And so it was a good thing that most of the, a lot of the early development work was done before COVID. Yeah, going forward, I mean, do you think you're getting more access again? Or, you know, we've we've talked to companies that have like started to use more like, you know, video conferencing and type of things in, in operating rooms. I mean. I think that there is an essential step of being in the operating room when you're doing visits that are for R&D and product development. Yeah. I think there are some things you can make up. You can do interviews and you can do interviews that, that are helpful. You can bring surgeons in uh, for labs and you can have discussions with them and, and review the surgical steps there that can certainly help. But it's tough to substitute for the real clinical situations that you face in the OR. Yeah, just being there and, and seeing what they're doing. Yeah, because the types of situations are complicated. You don't get, if you aren't in surgery enough, you don't get to see some of the complications occur. And that's really where, that's where some of the greatest insights can come in, where you see a potential complication emerging. How does the surgeon accommodate for it? What might we have been able to do that could have improved it? It's tough to substitute that. So I, I think in the long run is, yes, we're going to bring in some of these tools that we learned during COVID, but we're, it's never going to be a complete substitute for actually being in the OR and getting a sense for what the real challenges are with some of these particularly tough cases. You know, we were talking about like smoothing out power behind the Echelon 3000. I mean, what, what went into that? Well, smoothing out the, I think one of the most important challenges is when you're yeah. going to apply power to the device, it has to be incredibly controlled. And when your device is all built around the idea of precision, you need to be able to apply power so that you can adjust the articulation angle, adjust um, the firing as, as you need to. But particularly around articulation angles, you need to be able to stop it. And then when you switch into the mode of firing the device, to be able to lock the jaw in place or hold it in place so that it doesn't tend to move. And that is that was a particularly tough challenge because mechanisms, particularly our articulation mechanisms, will tend to want to straighten out. And you can see that with other devices in the market where when you fire them, they'll, they'll tend to try to straighten themselves out. Our device, we were very conscious of saying those articulation angles that are that are used in these cases, the surgeon's choosing them for a reason. And when they go to fire the device, we want to give them both the control over uh, the firing and make sure that their articulation they've chosen, that articulation angle is held precisely. Because sometimes, and I'll have uh, bariatric surgeons tell me this, is the difference of a degree or two, or the placement of that line that they're doing as they're transecting the stomach can be the difference between a really successful surgery where the patient has great weight loss and success to a procedure where maybe the, they're not getting as good a weight loss, or maybe they're getting reflux afterwards. So we really tried to give as much precision and control back to the surgeon. You know, I'm thinking of this Echelon 3000 device. I mean, how long is this thing? Like, it is um, ergonomically, it's from a size standpoint, the same size as our current device. So that was the other goal wow. we had is as we added capability to the device, we didn't want to 
burden it with excess weight or excess size because the weight balance and the size are really important. And the other thing that we're learning over and over again is that the composition of our, our populations of surgeons is changing. Relative to just a few years ago, there are far more female surgeons than there used to be. And devices need to be designed for people of, uh, who have hand sizes of all different hand sizes and be able to, they should, we have to be able to control the devices and be able to get that precision regardless of whether you're a size six or whether you're a size nine. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. So I mean, how, how much of a challenge has that been in the past for women's surgeons that the devices were more built for like big hand, strong arm guys, basically? Uh, well, originally we made a shift probably uh, close to 10 years ago where we started designing for a much wider range of hand sizes. But um, what I love about the, you know, our surgeon populations and whether it's female surgeons or surgeons over in Asia is fortunately they've been very vocal with us. I mean, they'll tell us immediately if we've got a device that is too difficult to fire, too difficult to manipulate. And we take that very seriously. We have a terrific human factors uh, design group that is constantly working with with surgeons and um, and surgeons who have different hand sizes, different and different different sizes overall, so that when our device is used, whether it's used by a really large male or a smaller female, that they can get every bit of the capability and benefit of the device, and it's just as easy to use either individual. That's really awesome. It just plays into like. I mean, there's just been this shift, like, you know, whether it's like clinical trials or design or whatnot, you know, just to make sure that we have devices that aren't just built, you know, for uh, basically for white guys like us, you know, for the the whole population, you know, everybody. The circular staple was the notoriously most difficult device to fire across the array of stapling devices. And there was a, you know, an anecdote that I would generally hear is that, you know, usually when it comes to the step where they have to do the anastomosis in a colorectal case, they would typically go find the largest person they could find. They'd flag them down in the hallway if they needed to, to actually fire the device because it's so difficult to give both. You needed the hand span to grasp the handle. And then the force that's required to squeeze and close device is the highest among any of the devices. So when we were able to bring the, cir- the uh, echelon circular device to market, it made a huge difference. It also made that device accessible to everyone. That's awesome. That's just that's just great. And it almost plays into too. I mean, one one of the big questions I had coming to this interview was, okay, so we, you know, we post an article about the Echelon 3000 and it got page views on mass device that we'd usually get for something that was like a robot or, you know, uh, or, you know, a heart pump. And, you know, I, I just, I just feel like talking with you today that I think it got the attention because there's just such an attention here to reducing these complications and saving lives, frankly. I mean, people could die if we have too many of these complications. That's our mission. What we really view as success is if we're able to bring a device to market. And one of the things we do with every, particularly every stapling device that we bring to market, we now either put them in a clinical trial or we gather real world evidence, whichever is more appropriate for the case. But we're always validating to make sure that that hypothesis that we had initially that we could make a difference in complication. And we're actually doing it. And that's, to, for us, that is the most important measure of success is did we bring a device to market which has been able to make a difference in the health burden, make a difference in the current standard of care? And yeah. there is nothing more rewarding than that because these cases are cancer cases that people are involved in. They're right. brain cases. They're, they're really serious operations where we can make a difference for people. 
So before we wrap up, what's next? What, what has you most excited in the space you know, going forward? There is so much more that we can do in the area of compromised tissue and, and organ-specific tissue. We are just scratching the surface now, as I mentioned, that we've been developing new staple forms, new staple patterns, and things like that. That is just scratching the surface of how we can make a difference in the way our device, and particularly the the tips of the end effectors of our device, interact with tissue. That's where the action occurs. And when we make a difference there, that technology can be redeployed in robotic settings, it can be redeployed in laparoscopic settings, and even in open surgery settings. And that knowledge, in the same way that we took the gripping surface and we've redeployed that across multiple modalities, these next generation of staples, staple formations, materials, and so on that we're using, will find their way across all uh, procedures. Uh, I think you'll see that we'll follow those with clinical trials and we'll show that we can make continue making difference in that two to three billion dollar health burden associated with complications. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Tom, thanks for you know taking time with us today. This is uh, really fascinating stuff. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Yeah, great to have you on. Thank you. All right, Chris Newmarker, let's get this weekend started. Yeah, <laughs> here we go. All right, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Where can uh, folks Chris- find you on social media, Chris? Yes, it's a good. You can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, <laughs> like a new marker. You can find me on Twitter at Newmarker. Always happy to catch up with people. You're not on the gram. No, I got- posted a video of a bird tweeting. Oh that's getting, wow, that's getting a lot of attention. Exciting. Yeah, yeah. Just keeps every time it's evergreen. It's just every time we open it up, someone else is like my bird tweeting video. It's up to, you know, it's only 30 or so, but Instagram's weird. Anyway, <laughs> I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. <laughs> I am on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. And uh, of course, you can, uh, what can they do to the podcast, Chris? You can like, follow, subscribe. Absolutely. Like, follow, and or subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network. You will get future episodes of the Device Talk Weekly podcast. You'll get future episodes of the Striker Talks podcast, future episodes of the Intuitive Talks podcast. And of course, you can also subscribe to Medtronic Talks and you'll get future episodes and be able to find past episodes of all those podcasts. Uh, All will be sent directly to your listening device. We have a wealth of multimedia content. It's crazy. And you can find them on- (laughs) Like a uh, smorgasbord. It is. It is a podcast (laughs) buffet. Just put out the tray and just grab a green jello and a yellow jello and red jello. They're all there. We got all the jellos. Every they have those little chicken drummy things there? Like that's a- We can get chicken drummies if you want. All right. That will get you in the buffet, but uh, you can also- Go Ponderosa. (laughs) You can also find a good good Sizzler too. You can find uh, what Sizzler (laughs) buffet. Anyway, devicetalks.com has these all as well. And the individual company websites usually have them. Medtronic definitely has Medtronic Talks uh, featured prominently and uh, Striker Talks. Striker has it up on their site as well. So that is a wrap. Once again, uh, you can register to uh, listen to my presentation about the upcoming Device Talks West meeting. Uh, I'll be giving it live on Tuesday at 2 p.m., but you can also watch it on demand. So uh, I'll put a a link in the podcast notes if you'd like to check that out to understand what we're doing there. It's going to be an exciting program. We'll have uh, many great companies that I listed at the top. We'll be be presenting and participating, including more that I'm not quite ready to announce yet, but hopefully will be in the next couple of weeks. So uh, please do do check it out and plan to join us uh, as a sponsor or attendee at uh, Device Talks West, October 19th and 20th 
at the Santa Clara Convention Center. Got to be there or be square. Absolutely. Do not be square. Speaking of birds tweeting, I just heard a bird tweeting in your background. I think that's a cardinal. I got I got a wealth of birds. <laughs> get a video card- of it, Chris. The cardinal is get really a, happy. Get <laughs> a video of that cardinal tweeting. You'll be you'll blow up. The cardinal Instagram. is excited to be a device. <laughs> that's a wrap, folks. Tune in next week. We have falcons in my neighborhood, Tom. Hopefully, the falcon does <laughs> get the cardinal. Tune in next week. All right. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks <laughs> Weekly Podcast waiting for you. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Have a great summer. Look at that. It's really, that cardinal's really going. <laughs> it's really going.